you all for coming. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk more specifically about the issue of human trafficking. Um, Rahab's Rope, the organization that I work with, works in three different locations in India, and we work in three different capacities, in prevention, aftercare, and direct intervention. So I focus primarily on prevention. Um, and really to understand the need for prevention, you have to understand what human trafficking is and who it affects and the the capacity at which it does so. Um, so it would be like um, putting seatbelts in cars before there were any accidents. You know, pro- people probably wouldn't have thought, thought about that. So tonight we're going to focus on... Um, on the facts of human trafficking. Um, so the stories that you're going to read, I haven't necessarily met all of the women um, that you're going to read about or, or the men, um, but the women that, that work with Rahab's Rope in Mumbai work with these women directly. They have social work backgrounds, and they're able to, to work with them, develop a relationship with them. And what they're, what they're really doing is, is pulling their story for a case file in the case that they get to escape from that area. So these women are considered criminals instead of victims. So they, most likely the way that they escape is by um, being arrested. So when they get arrested, they still have to go through the court system and determine whether or not they're guilty or not, whether or not they've made the choice to be there. So these case files can go with that woman and hopefully um, shed light on her situation that she didn't make that choice um, when she first got into that lifestyle. So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, and you have an envelope in front of you, so don't open that yet. Just hold it until I tell you to open it. Um, some of you some of you know that Rahab's Rope was founded in 2008 by Vicki Moore. She's a housewife from Gainesville, Georgia, and she was doing some um, searching on the on the web looking for a place that her church could go for a mission trip. And she found out, and she had India on her heart because she'd been there for a long time um, or been traveling there. And she found out that there are over 200 women and children trafficked there every day. So her heart broke and she began to walk forward on a path that it seemed that God was opening up in front of her. Um, I'm going to just read out the mission um, so I don't don't mess it up. The mission of Rahab's Rope is to give hope and opportunity to women and girls that are at risk or have been forced into the commercial sex trade of India. We provide a safe and loving environment that will enable them to grow and develop both physically and spiritually. Our vision is to see lives transformed by God's love and action. We reveal, we reveal his love in a way that an individual can see, understand, and respond to in faith. God allows us to facilitate the process by which each woman in our care first is provided for emotionally, physically, spiritually, and then with basic education and training and vocational skills, and eventually enabled to re-enter her community in a positive, contributing way. We equip each woman to reach, her own, to reach out to her own community and create a current of positive change. So some of you that were, that were here this morning, some of you I've talked to um, before, the young women that I work with in prevention, we don't just teach them a skill, but we actually teach them about human trafficking and not say, you're at risk, but we're all at risk, really. And if we're all ignorant to it, then we're even more at risk. But after we teach them the skill and the facts about human trafficking, we charge them to go into their own communities. The communities that they live in in that moment 
But also, these young women are likely going to be married and will then go to their husband's community. So they're then equipped to continue to spread and spiderweb the information. And they'll be going likely back to the, to the source villages um, where a lot of young women are trafficked from. Um, so a little about the setting of India. Um, the major religion in India is Hinduism, which is about 80, 80%. Um, 13% Muslim, 2% Christian, and Christian encompasses um, Catholic and believers. Um, they would consider us believer as opposed to a Catholic, and they would consider Catholics Christians. Um, Sikh and other. Um, Hinduism is a religion that incorporates um, a lot of different gods and per- perpetuates the caste system which is um, there is the lowest caste, which are considered untouchables. And though it's illegal, it's still very much a part of their culture. And those people, nobody wants to touch them or be around them or help them. And that was one of the arguments for why we got kicked out of a couple of places, because we were helping slum girls and sharing Bible stories. But who, why would we want to help them? They didn't want them walking anywhere near their building or in their space. Um, and then the, on the top side of Hinduism is self-realization, um, where they believe that we're, we're actually all God. Like this whole world that we live in is an illusion and God is in us, but we, we get really trapped into this illusion that we live in. Um, and so they try to get internal, um, to get back to the God that, that is, is inside of us. Um, marriage and family units. There's primarily women and men are arranged to be married. So here we, this is what I've been told. Here you meet somebody, you fall in love, you get married, you have children. There you get married, you have children, you fall in love. And, <laughs> and you know, it has, it has positives and negatives. You know, very loving families. Um, like one of one of the ladies that I worked with, her brothers, she doesn't have a father, but her brothers are very loving. And they've set up several arrangements, but she's met the person yeah. and hasn't liked them or didn't feel like they were a good match, and they've called it off. And then on the other side, there's a young woman that I work with that was married when she was one-year-old. And her husband, who was her 26-year-old uncle at the time, waited and married somebody else until she came of age and then also took her to his home. Um, so you have a huge contrast between what is a good marriage and what is a bad marriage in that, in that system. But it is fairly well known that you will not be picking, you will not be dating and making a match. In fact, the love, love marriage is very much stigmatized um, because it's not allowed for men and women to talk to each other. Like, it wouldn't be appropriate for two people to be in this room together, male and female, and there not be anybody else around. Or for somebody to talk after church, there always has to be another person with them. One of our girls got in trouble for being on the phone too long, walking down the street, because there's no reason that she should be on the phone outside of her home. Who is she talking to, and what is she talking about? So even if a love marriage occurs, you generally is a shotgun wedding because it's inappropriate for anybody to have a relationship before marriage. Um, even holding hands 
would be significant. You know, they get to talk on the phone after they're arranged, but they still wouldn't really touch each other or hold hands. Um, perhaps after they're, they're engaged, they might get to do that. Um, the head of the house is definitely a male figure. Um, when people are young, they answer to their father. When girls get married, they move into the, to the man's um, family house with the mother-in-law and the father-in-law and who whatever brothers are still there um, with their wives and their children. And it's a one-room house in most cases. Um, but during the day, if the husband is at work, the daughter-in-law would report to the mother-in-law. And she is totally in charge of her daughter-in-law. And then in the evening, she is under the control, the direct control of her husband. Um, she is always considered an outsider in her family's home. She's never, like in most traditional Hindu families, they wear they wear saris when they get married, which is six meters of fabric that, that wrap around. And it's beautiful, but it's not terribly comfortable. And it would be like wearing your Sunday dress every day doing the housework instead of wearing, you know, your house robe in your in your own home as you're doing work for your for your mother in law. Um, as far as children goes, girls are considered bad luck. So if a woman produces a girl, then she's often beaten beaten by her by her husband, by her mother in law. Um, I know a young woman that had two girls first and even her sisters made fun of her because she had two girls. And what has she done wrong? Serves her right. She's got two girls. And it totally alienated her from any type of community that she might otherwise have. A lot of people, um, well, sonograms are illegal because the government is afraid that if people know the sex of the baby, that they would abort all of the girls. And it does happen that people... Um, kill the baby when it's born if it is a girl. Um, and they they do know that you have to have girls. They just don't want to be the ones to have them. Um, and <laughs> and the you know the reason for that um, one is a safety issue. Like the the young mother that I know, she loves her daughters, but she's she knows what the environment is like, and she doesn't think that she can keep them safe. So she is incredibly fearful of what their future is going to hold. She's afraid that their life might be like hers. Um, And then on the other side, when they get married, they are required to pay a dowry. So they, unless they have a good sum of money, they're not going to get a good match for their daughter. And unfortunately, in small villages and in impoverished families, that's where a lot of trafficking occurs. If families have multiple multiple girls, they, they're not able to afford them for the food, but also for the future dowry. So when people come in and they say, hey, I have a job for your daughter. If she'll come to the city with me, she can clean my house. Well, for that, for that family, they think it's a good opportunity. They send their daughter, and unfortunately, it's not always a cleaning opportunity. Um, boys are expected to live with their families and care for them. Um, so that's another reason that boys are beneficial over girls because you have your built-in retirement plan with with the boy instead of the expense of the girl. Um, so if you have an, you can look at your envelopes now. If you have an A in the upper, don't open it. (laughs) 
I went through a program at Bassett, um, quality improvement. I, I forget operations for improvement. It's always listen to the directions and follow them. <laughs> Don't open yet. Okay, look in the upper right-hand corner. If you have an A in the upper right-hand corner, stand up. Stand up. <laughs> or one of eighty, you can stand up for. Okay. Okay. So this is the percent of women and girls that can read in India. Okay. You can sit down. That is also the percent of boys that think it's okay to abuse their wives. And a little bit less, like maybe one person could sit down. And that's the percent of girls that think it's okay to be abused. That it's justified to be abused in a relationship. If you have a circle around your letter, yeah, stand up. Okay, that's okay. Okay. This is the percent of women who have um, either experienced rape or sexual abuse in the world. It's one in five. And... I used the in the world's number because we can't really get to that number in India because any kind of sexual exploitation is either expected and it wouldn't be reported. Um, A lot of it occurs in a marriage or they would be too ashamed to report it for fear that their future, that they wouldn't have a future because at that point they would be tainted and dirty and not be able to to have have a husband. Okay, you can open your envelopes and read the white paper and read it just to yourself. Human trafficking as defined by the United Nations Trafficking Protocol. The recruitment, transport, transfer, harboring, or receipt of a person by such means as the threat or use of force or forms of coercion, of abduction, fraud, or deception for the purpose of exploitations. There are three core elements. The action of trafficking, which means recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, receipt of persons. Um, The means of trafficking, which includes the threat or use of force, deception, coercion, abuse of power, or position of vulnerability. And I think I thought trafficking was always a physical thing. But there's a lot of deception and abuse of vulnerability um, that is often taken advantage of. Um, in the trafficking of persons. And the purpose for trafficking is always exploitation. Um, at a minimum, the exploitation of the prostitution of others or the forms of other, other sexual exploitation, forced labor or services, slavery or practices similar to say, slavery, servitude, or the removal of organs. Um, and the removal of organs does happen with a lot of the women in the brothels to pay, to pay back debts, um, or they're just property. So it's easy for people to, to gain money from that. Um, human trafficking is the number three international crime in the world and generates $32 billion per year. It's second to arms trades and um, illegal drug trafficking. 79% of the people involved in human trafficking are females. And it's difficult to get to the number there's a there's an estimate estimate that 20 to 50 percent of those people are children. 46 percent of victims are trafficked by someone that they know. We often think that somebody gets picked up on the side of the road and 
thrown into a car or somebody comes to a village that you don't know, but oftentimes it's a boyfriend or an aunt or an uncle. Um, Another misconception about human trafficking is that traffickers are men. Oftentimes men will use women to traffic other women. Um, They become very much involved in that process. There are three million trafficked persons in India alone. Now, India is by no means the only place that this happens. It's only 10% of the people that it happens to. It happens to have the largest population of trafficked persons because it has one of the largest populations in the world. Um, And our particular heart for it is just because um, we have a heart for India. Um, But it happens here. It happens in Franklin County. It happens in Virginia. Atlanta is one of the worst places in the United States because you have the international airport, and you have three interstates that converge at the same place. So in India, 200 women and children are trafficked every day. So could somebody, would somebody who has Kamini tell us about Kamini? Okay. And you don't have to read her whole story, but just tell us, tell us what you know about Kamini. Party at her neighbors. She snuck out because her three brothers did not want her to get food. And her neighbor, it sounds like, gave her a drug drink. And the next day she woke up in an unfamiliar place and she was taken to who? Pune. 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 And they were told, she was told that she was going to be a prostitute. And then one day another lady came and took her and she was her madam. And then she had to work for her for five years. And she was pregnant several times, had had to have several abortions. And then when she was 16 or 17, she had someone that took a liking to her. She got pregnant. He said he was going to be around. They let her have the baby. And when she had a girl, he left. So now she's stuck at the madam. And she's trying to get away from her, but she's not letting her get away. So Thank that was pretty much her story. Thank you. Sunita? Part of this I didn't understand, so that's good. Uh, She was about 13 years old, and a woman Mm -hmm. sold her to a a man, Mm -hmm. and she was well taken care of for a year. Mm -hmm. That part I didn't get. And finally, she was taken to a hospital, examined, Mm -hmm. and I guess proved that she was healthy. And she was. met her sister-in-law's sister from the same village. And they were both dead to be kept in the same house, so they were. And when they came from the hospital, everything changed. She was forced in the main part of the house, and a man arrived, and she heard him negotiating for her. And then she was forced after that, and every day, to have customers daily. And she was there for 17 years, and she fell in love with one of these men. And he wanted to marry her, and she thought this was her ticket out. She found herself in another red light district, and also her sister-in-law's sister was moved to the same area. And she gave birth to a son after her marriage, but her son had in a car accident when he was 13. Her husband was addicted to alcohol and died as a result of the consecutive drinking the same time that her son died. 
She's past prime as a sex worker, and she had no family. So she began to support herself with managing the house with several women working in it. She's now 50 years old, and she's been in the red light district for 20 years. It's been four years since she was taken away from her village, and she has said that she'd like to live two more years and die. She doesn't want to live a long time because she has no family. Sunita is the madam of Prema and Kamini. Would somebody tell us about Akash? He is a 32-year-old construction worker. He's from a small village, but he has to move with his job. And he said when he moved to Mumbai, Mumbai um, working with the crew there, the members of his construction crew told him about where they go, the brothel they go to for services. And he said finally his loneliness got the best of him and he started going there. And um, he says that uh, he spent more and more time there. He, he goes home, I guess, to visit less, drinks more, and has a whole new pattern of life. He says his health has fallen off since then. And he had to have some tests run at the hospital and found out he was HIV positive. And he says, I'm now debating, I'm supposed to go visit my family again in two weeks' time. And I'm faced with a decision. Do I come clean about my unfaithfulness to my wife if it means I risk losing her or do I keep my choices quiet and risk her health? Thank you. Gira? Gira fell in love when she was 17, which was a no-no. She and this young man ran off and got married or whatever they do. And then they were disowned by their family. So they were very, very poor. They lived in a slum community because that's all they could afford. Um, they became financially strapped, and her husband started pressuring her to go make money in the brothels. She had a decision to make, and, and she ended up making that decision to go to work in a brothel. Um, she became pregnant, and she didn't know if she was pregnant from her marriage or working in the brothel. And um, HIV, of course, in this story as well. Her daughter was born with HIV because she had become infected too. And so it ends up that she uh, has a very sick eight-year-old, um, no way to comfort her daughter, get her treatment. And um, that's, that's where the story ends, that she's trying to take care of her daughter. And this is to symbolize... Oh, you don't have to title. You can title yours. Oh, I can put on me. Perna. Can someone tell us about Perna? Okay, um, Perna was 11 years old when she had an arranged marriage. Um, she was very good about it, was very heavily, had outbursts of uncontrollable anger. She had one child at 13, one at 15, and one at 17. When she was 25, her husband lost his job and decided to move to Mumbai and search for a job. Um, he couldn't find one, and eventually told her that he had made a deal with the owner of a house where she would work in Brothel, and uh, the owner would get half of her profit, and the other half would go to her family. So she 
went to work there. She didn't want to do it, but she did. She had to do and um her husband quit looking for a job, bought alcohol with her money that she earned at the brothel instead. She had several pregnancies during the time she worked there and had been terminated them because they were illegitimate. Her husband and Madame forced her to turn. Um then she found out her husband had bought a brothel room down the street from where she was working. And now instead of working for the Madame, she works for her husband. And he um, has given her the responsibility of finding and purchasing the other woman who also worked there. And she has to prostitute the other woman out there working. Um, she's 30 and she's been working there. Kamal? Kamal was born into a Muslim family in Kolkata. He attended school through the sixth grade. Father was very harsh and dominant in the home, and he was learning his father's trade as a painter and often experienced a lot of beatings when the job wasn't up to expectations. He also witnessed his mother being beaten often by his father when he was under the influence of alcohol. And so he turned to alcohol and attempted to escape from the problems he had at home. When he was 26, uh, he married an 11 year old girl in the range. And uh, she quickly gave birth to a son, followed by two daughters, uh, in order to make money. Knew several men uh, who had moved to Mumbai in search of work, and he decided to take his wife and go there as well. And instead, uh, they were stranded on the streets for several months, and his wife resorted to begging in order to buy food. He continued his alcohol addiction. Eventually, uh, he had borrowed so much money and was in so much debt that he had to negotiate with one of the brothel owners so his wife could work there and help pay off their debts. And, um, soon their income, with her income, they were able to rent a room and stay in around the corner from the red light area. Eventually he told her that uh, they would be much better off if they managed their own business. And so uh, he was taught some of the secrets of the trade, purchased a house in the district, moved his wife back there and set her up as a madam Kamal is yeah, is Perma's husband. Um, so these are just a few of the stories of the of the women and men that the group that works in Mumbai work with. In that location, as I said, they do direct intervention. They go directly into the brothels every day. Um, and have developed, they've been there for a little over a year now, and have developed um, quite a relationship with a lot of the women there, a lot of the madams, um, which is a little unheard of. Um, they don't necessarily talk to the men, but they get stories from from the madams or from, from some of the women. Um, the, the women there know that white people pray to Jesus. So when they started coming and seeing that, the group there is consistent. They started asking them to pray for them. So they started praying. Um, and then months later, they asked if we could, if they could have a Bible study. So the women in the brothel asked the girls from Raham's Row if they could have a Bible study. So there is a facility, facilitate, facility right in the middle of a red light district where there's three young women, 21 to 28, that go in every day and communicate with, love on, and share share stories and love. One of the women asked if one of her customers could come. 
and he has since been coming to the Bible study as well. Um, one of the reading the stories, it's really really easy to start putting um, start hating the men too um, that we think are victimizing the women. But really, everybody in the situation is broken, and everybody needs. We need to pray for everybody in that situation, and not just not just the women and hate the men. We need to pay for pray for the men, the madams, and the women who have been broken in that situation. So, did you learn anything today that you didn't know before? What did you learn? What were you most surprised by? I was surprised by the large number. I wouldn't have thought it would have been that there are actually more slaves today than there ever were during the Atlantic slave trade. And the average price of a slave during that time was in the tens of thousands of dollars in, to, in adjusted to today's prices. Today, the average price of a human being is $90. And you made a comment earlier. I didn't understand why she was treated well for yeah. a year. Yeah. Well, that's, that is part of... Um, Part of using her vulnerability. Yeah. So there's two ways that they do it. One is they treat them well, and so they feel like this person has taken care of them. And they feel a kinship to that person. They begin to love that person. And then when they start being asked to do other things, they think, well, this person took care of me. So it's, you know, I need to do that for that person. Um, On the other side of that, Women are starved, beaten, abused, burned. Um, people are, their friends or coworkers are beaten, abused, even killed in front of each other. So they, they have this fear that that might also happen to them. And then they also pit each other against one another. So even though there's a friendship, there's always a solitude as well, so it feels to them like they have nobody else. They can't go home because now they're shamed. Where they are, they're more like everybody else, so they're more comfortable there. They feel like they can't get away, but they're still pitted against each other in that in that place too. Who else? I was surprised that they were paid. That they get paid. Some of them do, and some of them don't. Some of them, some of them come and go. Like I met one lady when I was in Mumbai, who whose family lives across town, and she takes an auto rickshaw to the brothel every day, and then she goes home. So she, like at this point, she's making a choice. But what is the background? When did? How long has she been there? And what else does she? What else can she do? Or what else does she think she can do? different than that. Susan, mm-hmm. I, I got a question. Um, that you said some get paid and mm-hmm. some don't. Right. All right, so what do they do the ones that don't get paid? Then they would, the money would go to the madam. So oftentimes the the gentleman I mean, would... Somebody else would somebody, the money? Yeah, somebody else would take the money. Mm-hmm. So. Susan, I'm yeah. interested in... Uh, 
It de- it depends. Like there there are some some women, huh? Is it just for rich people education? No, they have they have education for for everybody for the government. But a lot of girls are more valuable doing housework. So like I know I know a little girl that's eleven, and her parents sent her to work with her uncle and aunt, which is maybe twelve hour bus ride away, and she's there to take care of the house. And the other kids. The other kids are 11, 10, 5, and 4. So the other kids go to school. They're all part of the same cast, but one has a little bit more money than the, than the other family. So they're, you know, they're doing a favor, kind of. She's getting paid, but she's 11 and doesn't get to go to school. So, you know, we, part of what we do in prevention is providing funds for those schools. So people, so the kids can go, and so we can reach out to the families. And in a case like that, we know we know her. We can't take her. We can't physically take her out. But I have a relationship with her mother, and I just her mother. the The mother can't read, and she's twenty six or twenty eight, and she's so proud of her daughters who can read. And I just let her know that she has the opportunity to give this little girl that gift. So, and she said, "I've never thought of that." You know, her daughters could teach her while they're doing her homework. So, you can pray for that one. <laughs> um, and part of direct intervention, aftercare, and prevention is the basic education. We work in preschools and prevention, but direct intervention and aftercare, they go in with math papers, like kindergarten math papers. They do math sitting on the steps of the brothel. They get up and go when they need to and then come back and keep doing their math. Or ABCs, or you know, whatever, whatever it is that they're that they're learning. They do. The government actually provides birth control, and they pay for you to have your tubes tied. Um, unfortunately, the tubes tie thing, they they won't let them do that. Or I can't speak generally, but I've heard that they often aren't allowed to do that because they would be out of commission for too long. So they have pills that they can take, um, and it's very common for them to take those pills a month, two months, three months. I know a lady that's taken them four months after she knew that she was pregnant. Um, what about to prevent disease? They use condoms. Um, they, we actually found out that they were using, they have to pay more um, if they want to not use a condom. Um, they oftentimes use multiple, and we've had a life skills class on that as well to teach them that it's better to only use one. So even though, you know, we don't necessarily approve what they're, what they're doing, this is their situation, you know, and until, until they're able to get out of it, um, and feel like they can get out of it, we want to, yes. Um, in regards to that, Statistically, women who have been rescued or arrested out of that life go back seven to nine times until they leave for good. And a lot of that, a lot of, there are some government homes, and we work with a government home in Bangalore, um, and they provide a little vocational training, but very little. And when those women leave, they have nothing in their bank account. They have very few skills, if any skills. So they get on the street, and they still have to 
So most likely, out of need, they go back. So we're, we're working to, to get a stitching center there and be able to possibly teach them to make some products and purchase products from them so they can begin to build a little something. What else? Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I read first, I was like, gosh, you're an awful person. Whereas it was interesting to hear his side of it. I still obviously don't agree with what he did. But it was interesting to hear what he said. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I've got Otter Kamal's story here. Right now, I think. The one yeah. who went. Mm-hmm. I understand they have two daughters inside of two fathers. Yeah. To prevent that. Right. Babies. Right. Right. In that particular case, I think they left their children with her mother. So in, in a case like that happens a lot, that children get left with other family members. They may go back and see them and pretend like they are cleaning somebody's house. You know, they, they will never tell anybody what they're doing. Their family might not know what they're doing. They have this internal shame so that, that holds them there and prevents them from, like, really escaping at that point. Um, but that that happens. There are children that grow up in the red light district. Um, since December, the women that work in Mumbai have been able to rescue four young children out of that area. And there's a there's an orphanage. A lot of orphanages are filled. I think you talked, touched on this this morning. It's not necessarily an orphanage because all your parents are dead. There's an, there are just group homes where lots of people end up. Um, so in this case, their parents are still alive, but the little girl was severely abused. Um, and finally, we were a- they were able to remove her from that situation. And the boys were, um, I'm not sure if they were as abused, but the mother wanted something different for their life too. So um, we've, we've partnered with an orphanage, and those children can go there. And we're starting a sponsorship program so we can sponsor those children so they can stay there. Um, and actually, a lady that I met, big circle around, that I met in Nicaragua that got, like, how I got to India, Emily, she is going to be working with the orphanage and taking teams there to help the orphanage and help those those programs. So there'll still be a connection with that. It's my understanding that there are Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they it's such a land of con- of contrast because they they require some regulation, but then there's lots of bribery too. Mm-hmm. So it would be very difficult to operate a legit organization within the country. So this one particular pastor is doing so and is is growing and um, is getting some some help from different organizations to do that. But yeah, it is, it is very hard. And aftercare homes too. You know, the government has them. There are several NGOs that have them. Um, but funding and manpower, you know, the hands to make them effective is very limited. So, and what I didn't realize before, before going, you know, I was working on the prevention side. So I didn't see this brokenness. You know, these, the women that I worked with are likely abused in various ways. Um, but they weren't as broken as the women that have gone through the brothels and are in aftercare. Um, but most of the young women are have a social work background and are able to 
or a psychology background. And that's one thing India doesn't necessarily focus on right now, but they're getting um, is helping these women process through and actually heal from that. You know, Jesus is the is the healer, but there's a there's a physical physical healing too. What are you gonna be doing? Yeah, um, I'm gonna continue to work with Rahab's Rope for a while. Um, we we raise half of our money by selling products, so. That's my background. <laughs> if it's leather or nail pearls or crochet, I can do it. Um, so I worked with them last week to create a paper catalog for the first time. I'm helping to revise the host party program. Thank you all. I know that, and I didn't say this this morning, but thank you for all of the support while I was gone. The emails, the host parties, the letters, I could not have done it without all of the prayers. It really was not me walking. It was the Lord answering your prayers. So thank you. Um, so I'll be revising the host party program in an effort to make it more um, more effective and also hopefully to engage um, people who have a heart for human trafficking who want to partner on a more long-term basis. We have a lot of people that, like, like, like you all, who had a party because I was gone, like, if anybody has a heart that wants to do, say, I'll do, I'll do three in 2014. You know, we'll set them up to be able to do that and to help raise, raise that money. Um, also hoping that that can become a catalyst for keeping the previous volunteers engaged. Because hands are few and it's difficult after somebody goes to India and then comes back, keeping them engaged in the program. Like, I, I talked to the volunteers that were that was there with me that I had a relationship with, but other than that, you could totally not hear about these women ever again. So, and that is heartbreaking because we continue to have a relationship with them and we can help keep people in a relationship. And honestly, that helps from the women's standpoint too because they go through a mourning process every time somebody leaves. So, that's my... Any other questions, comments? Um, You have a blue piece of paper in your envelope. You don't have to read that right now, but that has all of the information that we talked about tonight, so you can reference that. Um, There are a couple of websites and books. There's a couple of fiction books on there that are um, based on on reality Um, and a couple of fiction movies, so if, like, the real deal is too tough at first. Um, those two are good heartbreakers too. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you for the interest and the opportunity. Yeah. And situation those situations and something that I, I think of as okay because because I'm a doer uh, that's just the way that I'm wired okay how do we what do we do how can we help one way that we can help Susan tonight is to buy products 
because when we do that, something, it seems as simple as buying a scarf and necklaces and so forth, but what that's doing is you are legitimizing those women trying to come out of that lifestyle. Seriously. And I know for me and probably for most of you, we think, I can't even imagine what, I mean, what would that be like to be an 11-year-old girl and you're, and you're sold and you're tricked and then you're exploited and then you're basically just left there with nothing to do? How could you remain in those situations? And a point that Susan brought out is that when these girls are trying to get out, they have nothing. So, so really, on a practical level, what do you do? There's no bank account, no way to feed yourself, no way to support yourself. That's why you said, was it seven times or more that they go back to that before they finally leave it? So this is a way, as simple as it may seem, it's extremely profound and very theological, honestly. It's us putting our money where our mouth is, and it's also great stuff. It's made well. You can give it for for presents and so forth. So I would encourage you to, to buy those products. If there's another time um, that you would like to buy some more, you can definitely get with Susan. But also, uh, for some of the ladies to get with Susan, and if, you're, if you feel led to invite the ladies in your social circle together to your home and do, what's the proper term? Right now it's called host party. Host party. Yeah, but we're, we're looking for something better. So, okay. So, so those of you that, that are marketers, uh, you can, you can uh, throw a host party. And that's another way that you can extend that blessing to other people. Because I do believe... Most people today um, who love Jesus and they're here in the States, they want to help, but a lot of times we're removed from those situations. This is a very direct way to help. Another way, obviously, this is the best way, I think, is to pray for those people. Pray that God would break the strongholds of Satan, spiritual warfare, and so forth. But, but also, like we talked about this morning, pray and say, Lord... What needs to change in me? How can you guide me to actually going over there and doing a short-term trip? Pray about it. Is that fair enough? To pray about going on a short-term trip. And um, it's one life at a time. There's a ministry team I was on right after I graduated seminary. We went to churches in Texas and did revivals. And we had one of the, um, the professors for one of the colleges there in Dallas, come talk to us about his time in India. And he said, we would drive for an hour from their their mission to go do a church service in the evening for a church of maybe 50 people. And he said, on the way there, we we were passing literally thousands upon thousands of people on both sides of the road. And he said it kind of got to the point where it was overbearing. And he said, Lord, what do I do? I mean, it's just the amount of lostness here, the amount of people, the amount of brokenness. And we're just a small team here. The pockets of believers are very small. How do we even make a, make a dent in this? And he said, it's like the Lord told him in his spirit, one life at a time. One life at a time. And whether that's in Franklin County or whether it's in India, that's the way that it's always been. One person, God touches and changes. And through that person, he touches and changes another person. And disciples make disciples who make disciples. And then... In the end, we pray and trust in the sovereignty of God that all nations will hear and there will be representatives from every people group. So thank you so much for coming out, Susan, once again. We're so happy for you. We're glad that you're back. And uh, we still have some refreshments here. I didn't even know where we were going to. So thank those of you who brought that. And uh, feel free to, to partake in that. But I love you all. And this is, a, this is, I think it's a heart check for me.
And it's, it's a point that I can begin to pray to say, Lord, help me look for opportunities to be plugged in. So. And Jeff, I love you too. Thank you, Joseph. I appreciate that. I really need to put the plug on my Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I'll close us in prayer and then uh, can support by, by buying some of the materials. Father, we're just grateful <clears throat> that you have given us life. She's given us the gospel that is full of power, that we have nothing to fear. We do not need to fear the darkness because you told us that you are the light of the world and in it, that if any man follows after you, he will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So would you help us to be courageous followers of you, that we are not afraid of the darkness making our light dark, but we can take the light into the darkness wherever it may be. And we pray, God, right now for the untold number of, of women that are in this situation. Lord, would you send somebody? Would you get the gospel to them somehow? Would you help us to be a part? You save them, let them know that you are their father. We pray for the men that are being tempted to go into these places. Would you just give them a brokenness that they cannot shake and a shame that would keep them away and to realize that as men we are protectors and we're not exploiters of women and children. We ask this in Jesus' name.